Okay, it's good to see y'all. Glad y'all made it. We're going to go ahead and get started tonight, and we are in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and we'll read verses 1 to 14 tonight. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. <clears throat> It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight and, Lord, for those who have come out, Lord, in such... Uh, miserable conditions yet to be here and to gather to hear your word lord we thank you for that and we do pray that your blessing would be upon us lord that you would uh, speak to us lord that you would use your word to sanctify us and to purify us from all unrighteousness lord that we might be faithful to you uh, so lord we pray that uh, you teach us of humility lord how it is that we must uh, regard others as greater than ourselves uh, lord that we must be like a child in order to enter into your kingdom Lord, that we would not have an inflated or too high of an opinion of ourself, but rather that we would seek the lowly status and to be a servant and to be humble, uh, Lord, and consider others greater than ourselves. So, Lord, teach us tonight from your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here in chapter 18, uh, the, the Lord is dealing here with issues related to uh, pride, uh, humility, uh, this issue arises because the disciples are talking about who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus is going to teach them about this and then use that to go on and teach about the little ones, uh, stumbling blocks, uh, what God is desiring in regards to the elect and to their salvation, uh, and that we should not uh, cause people to stumble and fall because of sin. So it's very important that we understand these things because one of the insidious sins that we have to fight against that is there in our flesh is pride, right? Pride, that we tend to have a very high view of ourselves in contrast to our brothers. 
an overinflated view of ourself and our own worth and our own importance. And this is contrary to the kingdom of Christ, right? That we cannot enter into his kingdom with such an inflated view of ourselves. So we have to have humility. We have to be sober-minded. We have to look at ourselves in the proper way and become like little children, be insignificant in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is the proper way that we should relate to one another within the church. So there shouldn't be jealousy and rivalry, dissension, this type of stuff, which is common in churches because people are looking out for themselves. They're not thinking about others. They're not wanting to serve others. They're not living in humility toward one another, but each one is going ahead and thinking only of himself. This is part of the problem that we read about every week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when they were taking the Lord's Supper, that they were not considering one another. This was their sin, but they were only consumed with themselves. And this is contrary to the Christian life and contrary to the way of Christ, who himself was a servant of all. If anyone had a right to be served by others, it was Christ. And yet he took the position of a servant and was lowly and humble toward us. And this is the way that we ought to be toward one another. So let's go back then to Luke, or to Matthew 18, and we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here, the disciples are asking him this question, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of Christ. They're wanting to know who is the greatest in this kingdom. Now, certainly, them being his disciples, in their mind, they're going to have a very high rank in the kingdom of Christ. And maybe this is on their mind because of what happened last time in the transfiguration, in that Peter, James, and John were taken up on the mountain and the other nine were left down below. And there is maybe in their mind some rivalry, some wondering, why are they having this preferential treatment, right? Is there a rank and order in terms of the kingdom of God? And so it's in their mind and they're asking this. Now that this is on their mind shows that they're not thinking rightly. Because if a person is asking this, naturally they're assuming, where do I rank? Where do I fall? Who am I ahead of and who's ahead of me? And then how do I get ahead of them so that I have the highest rank? So this is what's on their mind, and it's not right, right? It's not right. It's not the proper way to think. So in them and in their own mind, there is this leaven of pride that needs to be excised. It needs to be removed so that they're not thinking in this way. And this is why Jesus will address it. He'll address it and show them that the way they're thinking is not consistent with his kingdom. Actually, this type of thinking would preclude someone from even entering into the kingdom of God, that we cannot think in these terms and in these ways. In Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Mark chapter 9, verses 33. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which one, uh, which one another, uh, uh, they were discussing with one another, which of them was the greatest. So here in this situation, they're talking amongst themselves. Jesus knows what they're talking about. He overhears what they're talking about. And then he's asking them, what were you talking about on the way? They don't want to because they know that they shouldn't be talking like this. Yeah. They don't want to bring it up because they're embarrassed. They're ashamed of what it is that they were saying. 
because they're talking amongst one another about which one of them is the greatest, right? Who is the best, right? This is the way it commonly is, right? If it's a sports team, the, 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 the boys are in rivalry against one another. The one thinks he's better than the other. They bicker and they fight about which one is the best, which one is the greatest, right? People do this all the time at the workplace, right? On the team, in the home, all the time, people are in this kind of rivalry, uh, arguing and bickering with one another about which one is the greatest. And then Jesus says to them, sitting down, he called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set them before him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So if you want to be first, then you must be last and servant of all. This is a worldly way of thinking in terms of greatness. Who is the greatest? But here, we shouldn't be thinking like that. Instead, we ought to be thinking about serving and loving one another. Also, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35. says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared." Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." So here in this case, James and John are making a uh, power move, right, in order to secure their position. Because in terms of his kingdom, when he's on his throne, there's only a position on the right and a position on the left. These are the positions of highest honor. And they're asking Jesus, allow us to sit on your right hand and left hand when you come into your kingdom. This is what they're wanting. And they're asking this before the others can. So that they can secure, secure it for themselves, right? And then when G, they ask this, Jesus asks them, do you know what you're asking? Because they're not thinking right about the kingdom of right. God. They're thinking in terms of glory, honor, power, prestige, position. But really, to have this position of prominence in his kingdom would be to have sufferings, right? And that's why he says, do you, are you able to drink the cup that I would drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with, which is sufferings, his sufferings and his death. And they say, yes, we will, in which he confirms, okay, you will have that baptism, but to sit on my right or left, it's not mine to give, right? That is for the Father to give it to whom he is prepared. Well, when the other ten hear this, they become indignant. They're very angry. They're very upset because James and John have done this. So they're bickering, they're fighting, they're quarreling. 
they have division, rivalry amongst one another, and it's all about position, all about them having honor and prestige over and against their brother. They're not thinking in terms of humility and in terms of service. And Jesus draws their attention to the fact that this is what the rulers of the Gentiles do. They're the ones who exercise authority over men. They're the ones that elevate themselves at the expense of others and have people come grovel before them. But this is not the way it should be in the kingdom of God. And this shouldn't be the way it is amongst the brothers in Christ. But instead, we should be servants, servants of one another. And if we want to be first, we need to be the slave of all. And our prime example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we also should be willing to lay down our life for the brethren, for one another. Matthew 18, verse 2. Now Jesus is going to teach them concerning this and correct their uh, misconceptions. It says, And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here he calls this child and brings the child and puts him in the midst of them. He calls, draws the attention to the child and then tells the disciples that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be converted and you must be like this child. This is the way that you must be in order to enter the kingdom of heaven first He says, you must be converted. Unless you are converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Conversion is necessary. This is as it says in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. When Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, he stresses the importance of conversion or of being born again. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again, right? In order to enter, in order to see the kingdom of God. And then... After one is converted and born again, then they must be like a child, right? The conversion must be followed by a reformation, a reformation in the way that we view ourselves and in our character in the way that we live. We cannot have pride, but rather we must be humble, humble like children, right? This is the way he says that we must be. You must be like a child. Now, when he says this, he doesn't mean silly He doesn't mean irresponsible. He doesn't mean flighty and fickle as children typically are. No offense to the children. But this is the way that children typically are. They're not concerned with serious matters. They're not looking and reading the news to see what's going on in the world. They're not not giving themselves up to those types of things. And in that way, we shouldn't be like children. This is as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that he had given up childish things. When he became a man. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 said, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So when Jesus says we must be like children, he's not saying that we need to be childish, right? That we need to be immature. 
right, that we need to go climb trees and build forts and run out in the woods and be irresponsible. Of course, that's not what he means. So in that way, we're not like children. We need to be grown-ups. We need to be mature. We need to be responsible in that way. So what does he mean here when he says you must be like a child? Well, he means insignificant. He means that we must have a proper estimation of ourselves. And children are not consumed with rank and honor and position like adults are, right? Not that children don't have pride. Certainly they can have pride. But typically, if you have a group of children, they don't care if they're rich or poor, what, who, who they come from, where, where they live. They just want to have a good time together, right? If they're out there playing ball and I can go join them, I don't care who they are or where they're from. They're not concerned with those kinds of things. They're just insignificant and no one is concerned or cares really about what a child has to say on, on matters at all because they're just children, right? They're insignificant. This is the way we treat the little ones. They're not consumed with these kinds of things. Well, that's the way we have to be in the kingdom of God. We must have a proper estimation of ourselves. We must see ourselves as insignificant, as little children, and then we're not going to be prideful. We're not going to be arrogant. We're not going to have rivalry and be puffed up and putting ourselves over and above our brothers. Then he says, verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child. This child. Is this child arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is this child going up to Jesus saying, Grant me to sit on your right hand in the kingdom of heaven? No, he's not thinking in those terms. But he has humility, right? Because he knows his proper place. It's not his place as a child to be talking about those kinds of things. Well, in the same way, we have to be humble like a child and not be talking about and acting and behaving in this manner. Whoever is the child, right, will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. An example of this would be the Apostle Paul. His estimation of himself if we look in three passages, first is 1 Corinthians 15. Notice here, when he's saying these things, he's not having false humility. He's not just, you know, saying this, but he really doesn't believe it. This is what he truly believes about himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So in terms of grace, gifting, usefulness, the Apostle Paul exceeded the other apostles. He labored more than all of them in, in those regards. But in terms of his view of himself, he says that I'm the least of all the apostles, right? They're all greater than me. They all rank before me. He's not saying I, you know, I'm the greatest of all. Though in terms of work and labor, he excelled all of them. In terms of grace, he excelled all of them. But in terms of his estimation of himself, he was the least, right? He had a very small view of his own importance in relation to the other apostles because he persecuted the church of God. Right, He's focused here on his uh, sin, not in a sinful way. He's not wallowing in misery and mire, 
but he is seeing himself in the proper way, and he knows what he did, right? This is the way that we should be. Yes, all of us are sinners, but I know more personally my own sins than I know your sins, right? So who should I have the most harsh view toward? Well, I should be toward myself, but yet usually what are people like? They're more censorious against one another. They have a, a greater despising toward one another, and they think that they are perfect. But I know my own sins, right? I know what goes on in my mind. I know what goes on in my heart. I don't, I don't see your mind, and I don't see your heart. But you do. And when we are looking at ourselves in that way, then we will have this perspective, right? That I am the least. How could anyone be as sinful as I am? Yeah. But this is the way that we should be. Also, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. So he already claimed that he was the least of the apostles. Now in verse 8 of Ephesians 3, it says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Here, least of all the saints. Least of all the saints. The Apostle Paul. That's what he's saying about himself. Do we think this about ourselves? That we're the least of all the saints? Or do we think that we are greater, wiser, better than all others? Then also, 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So here, foremost of sinners. right? That's what he sees himself as greater than others. In sin, I am the foremost of all, of all sinners. So here, this is what Jesus means. Whoever humbles himself as a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is what the Apostle Paul says concerning himself. Verse 5. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Here, whenever we receive a child in the name of Christ, we're receiving Christ. Now, when we receive the child, do we get any earthly benefit from that? Right? In terms of rank, is the child going to be able to give me money? Is the child going to be able to give me position, to give me honor? The child, in terms of worldly success, worldly benefits, worldly rank, position, the child isn't going to benefit me at all. And yet, here, we're supposed to receive the child in the name of Christ. And when he says, one such child in my name, he's talking about believing children. Believing children. He doesn't just mean any children, but he's talking specifically about believing children, which shows that Jesus did believe and teach that children, right, in their youthfulness, that they can become Christians, that they can be believers in him. And if there is a child who's 10, 11, 12 years of age, whatever, and that child is a believer in Christ, then how should we treat them? We should really receive them as we would receive anyone else, as we would receive any adult, as we would receive any adult who is rich or who has a position or who has rank in this world. We should receive the child the same way as we do the adult. And all of them should be received as if we would receive Christ, as Jesus Christ himself. Because if they belong to Christ, then it is as if Christ is there and that we are receiving 
him. This is the way that we should be. So instead of thinking about our own positions of honor, we should be loving the saints, right? Loving others, receiving others, even those that are little ones, right? And to receive the child is to love the child, to perform all of the duties that are necessary for the building up of his faith. All of those duties necessary in the Christian church that we have toward one another. We should exercise those duties even toward the little ones, the children who are believers in Christ. Treat them as we would any other brother in Christ. Then verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So here, positively, we're to receive them. And then what we're not supposed to do on the negative side is we're not to cause them to stumble, which is tempt them to sin. If we cause a little one to stumble, we might think, oh, that's insignificant. It's just a kid. It's just a little one. What does it matter? Well, Jesus says if we cause them to stumble, it'd be better for us to be drowned into the, in the sea in a miserable way. A millstone hung around your neck, thrown into the sea, which means you're going to be killed. You're going to die. Better to die than to cause someone to stumble even a little child, to stumble and to sin. A couple of examples. First, Luke chapter 17. This isn't so much an example as much as it is a statement. And then the next one is an example of causing someone to stumble. Luke 17, verses 1 to 4. Luke 17, 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. So there, stumbling blocks are sure to come. Right? They're going to come. It's inevitable, but woe to the one through whom they come. There's a very severe, dire warning, all right, a curse, if we are the source of temptation for one of these little ones. So we must make sure that we're not doing that. We're not tempting people to sin in the way that we're acting and what we're saying to them. An example would be Galatians 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Galatians 2, 11 to 14 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here, Cephas was a stumbling block, right? He was a stumbling block, uh, and the Jews were carried away by him, and even Barnabas was carried away by this hypocrisy. So his sin 
was a source of sin to others as well. They were carried away because of what he was doing. And in this way, he was a stumbling block. And this is why the Apostle Paul confronts it and says that you're being a hypocrite, right? In the way that you're behaving and what you're expecting of the Gentiles, right? You shouldn't be living and doing these kinds of things. Okay, then verse 7. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Here, Jesus pronounces a curse on the world because of its stumbling blocks. The world is filled with many, many stumbling blocks. There are many sources of sin, sources of temptation, whether that be false doctrines, false ideologies, false philosophies, right? There's all sorts of these things. Or then the many lusts of the flesh that are out there, the things that are put before our eyes, that appeal to our senses, that are sources of sin and temptation. The world is filled with many, many stumbling blocks that are there as a detriment to our faith, right? To the Christian life that will keep us from doing the will of God. So he pronounces a curse on the world because of its stumbling blocks. But he says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, right? It is inevitable. It is going to happen, right? For a number of reasons. First, because of the malice of Satan. Satan is malicious. He hates the church. He hates the saints. He makes war against the brethren. This is the way he behaves. So his hatred for the church, for Christ, for the saints leads him to make war against them. And the way that he wages war is through stumbling blocks by tempting to sin. First Peter chapter 5 describes Satan in this way. First Peter 5 verses 8 to 9. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the devil is like a lion, lion seeking someone to devour. This is the way he is. He's constantly on the prowl, on the lookout, looking for someone to devour some Christian to devour, either by tempting them to sin so that they, they uh, bring scandal and disgrace on the gospel of Christ, their own testimony, or through sufferings, persecutions, that they might fall away, that they might abandon the faith through the severity of their trials and hardships. This is what Satan is doing. And the reason he does it is because of his malice, his malice and hatred for Christ and for his church. So, because of the devil, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Also, because of wicked men. We know that there are wicked men, and they are in a league with the devil. He is the spiritual, the invisible enemy, and then he works through wicked men that he uses to be a source of temptation as well. And both of them are at fault, right? And both of them are our enemies. In John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 19. 
says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that its deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they hate the light. They're evil people. So are there not many wicked men in the world? And they are a source of temptation to the saints, to the believers. And this has always been the case, Old Testament or New Testament. And I say that because someone, a critic one time, told me that in the Old Testament, the enemies of God were men, physical. But in the New Testament, the enemies are spiritual. And that's why in the Old Testament, they were allowed to pray for the destruction of their enemies but in the New Testament, because our enemies are spiritual, we shouldn't pray for the destruction of the wicked. This was this person's argument against imprecatory prayers. But what is the reality? What is the truth? In both the Old Testament and New Testament, our enemies are both spiritual and physical. It is both the devil and his demons and wicked men in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's always been the same. Wasn't Job attacked by Satan? who is an invisible spiritual enemy. And this is, but did Satan use wicked men? Yes, to execute that attack. And many of the things that were committed against Job, the sins were done by wicked men who came and brought those hardships upon him. So because of the devil and because of wicked men, there are many stumbling blocks in the world, but also because of the flesh, the flesh. This would be our internal enemy, the one that we carry about with us wherever we go. In Romans chapter 7, it describes this war. Romans chapter 7. And verse 21. Romans seven twenty-one says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So here, he has this principle that he knows to be true, a law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And what is the source of this evil? It's the flesh, right? The flesh that we have and continue to have even as believers. And we will have throughout the remainder of our life. And we won't put it away until we are perfected. When we are perfected, then we will not have the flesh anymore. So because of this, there will be many stumbling blocks and temptations to sin, right? And the world is cursed because of this. We'll be judged because of the many stumbling blocks that it brings upon us. In Proverbs chapter 9, we remember a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs 9, 13. Proverbs 9, 13. says, the woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. 
calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. This is the woman folly, and she's tempting those who are trying to make their paths straight, she's tempting them to come and commit sins with her, right? Whether that be sins of the mind or sins of the body, uh, lust of the flesh, whatever it is, this is what they want. And then an example would be in Genesis 39. Genesis 39 would be the example of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39, verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there. She caught him by his garments and said, Lie with me. And he left his garments in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garments in her her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garments beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until the master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make sport of me, and I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garments beside me and fled outside. So here this wicked woman was tempting Joseph to commit adultery is what she was seeking to get him to do. Joseph resisted firm in his faith, but this was a stumbling block put before him. Now, he didn't stumble over it. He was able to endure and to resist, but this is the way it will be in this present world. What should we do about it? Verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Whatever is the source of sin and temptation, the solution is remove it, right? As far as we can, right? Though it's impossible to remove all temptation, there are times when it comes upon us unexpectedly. We're not looking for it, we're not seeking it out, and then we just have to deal with it. That was the case with Joseph, right? Joseph wasn't looking for this. He's just doing his duties, doing what he's supposed to do, and then she seeks him out in this way. It comes upon him, and then he has to deal with it and do the best that he can. But as far as we can avoid temptation, we should avoid temptation. If there's a stumbling block and we can get away from it, then get away from it. That way we don't have to deal with these types of things. And we need to take very drastic measures to curb temptation, right? And we should be vigilant against this, knowing that we have the flesh and that the flesh we carry with us and the flesh wants us to commit sins against God. So why would we want to pour fire onto the flame? The flame is already there. And if we pour fire onto it, then it's going to burn hotter and hotter and hotter. 
which is well, this is what temptation is. Temptation is a arousal of the lusts that are already there. The lusts we have in our flesh, we have to crucify them, beat them back, try to starve them to death so that they don't exert influence over us. When temptation comes, those lusts are aroused and inflamed in such a way that they gr gain great uh, mastery over us or that they have great influence over us and then it becomes the temptation. Then we have to overcome it, right? But it's very difficult to do whenever that temptation is aroused within us. So whatever we can do to avoid the stumbling block, to avoid the temptation, then we should avoid it. If it's the right hand causing you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. If it's the foot, throw the foot away, right? He doesn't mean that literally, right? Because the hand and the foot, the eye, these are not what causes us to sin. Right. It is the flesh that causes us to sin. And it's the flesh in conjunction with external temptation that causes us to sin, whether that be the form of a person, the form of a place, the, what, what, something that we see. Well, we can't control the flesh in that we have it with us. It's not like we can extract it from ourselves. We have to deal with it. But we can uh, control who we're around. We can control where we go to some extent, what we see to some extent. So whatever we can do to control that, then that's what we should do and take whatever measures are necessary to avoid sin and temptation. And if there's something that is particularly difficult for us, right? And some people are plagued with one sin. It has more mastery or it has a greater pull upon them. And other people, there may be another sin that has a greater pull upon them. We need to know what our struggles are, what are our sources of temptation, and be aware of those things so that we're not needlessly, foolishly, putting ourselves in vulnerable situations where we're destined to fail, right? We shouldn't be doing that. We have to be wise. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We should not despise any Christian, any brother, any saint, whether they are a believing child or a believing adult, even a little one, as he says here, do not despise one of these little ones. This child that Jesus has brought in the midst and placed in front of them, he says, do not despise, despise this believing child. And this is the way that we should be. We can't show partiality. We cannot defer to the great, to the adult, to the aged over and against the young and the insignificant, the rich against the poor. We can't do that, but rather we have to have an impartial view of people. And if they are a brother in Christ, then we need to do good to them. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. James 2, 1 to 13 talks about this. James 2, 1 to 13 speaks of partiality, partiality within the church. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Right, We shouldn't despise the little one. Be partial against them. Right, That's a great sin. James 2, 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say... You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? 
Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here, the example he's using is the poor man and the rich man. And if you are partial to the rich man because of his riches, and it's obvious in the way that he's dressed versus the way the poor man is dressed, and you give him preferential treatment in the church based upon his wealth, based upon the way that he looks, then you are making distinctions. You are a judge of men, and you're not judging with righteous judgment. You're not judging them based upon their faith, their righteousness, their maturity, their godliness. Right, because you're preferring them just based upon their standing in this present world. And does God judge in that way? No. Does God prefer the rich? No. Does God prefer the poor? No. God looks to the humble, the contrite, those who are lowly in spirit, whether they're rich or poor. And this is the way that we should be as well. And if one is a little one, a child who has true faith, does God despise that child? No. He loves him. He cares for him. Christ died for him. He's going to raise him to eternal life. So how can we despise that little child who is a believer in Jesus Christ? We shouldn't do that. Also notice in verse 10, he says, I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. These little ones, their angels in heaven, right? Their angels who are in heaven, who are guarding them, who are protecting them, who are ministering on their behalf. We remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it, speaking of angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Do angels despise believing children? Do they despise believers who are poor? Do they despise believers who are slaves? Do they despise believers who have no standing, no honor, no rank in this present world? The angels do not despise them but they are happy to minister to all of god's people whether they're young or old rich or poor male or female slave or free none of these things matter to the holy angels they want to go render service for the sake of all of those who will inherit salvations now in terms of rank now who has the higher rank do we have the higher rank or do the holy angels have the higher rank they are more glorious. They have more power, right? They are spiritual beings. They are righteous, right? They don't have the flesh. They don't have sin. And where are they right now? They're in heaven and they are beholding the face of God. Are any of us beholding the face of God with our own eyes right now? We have to by faith in the word of God, but we're not in his presence continually, day in and day out, beholding the face of God. But who is beholding the face of God? His holy angels. And yet they're willing and ready to serve little ones, 
to minister to the little ones, to come and to help them and protect them and aid them in their salvation. So if the angels don't despise them, but serve them, then how can we despise them? Right. We can't, but we must serve them. We must serve them as well and love them just the way the angels do. Because the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. Christ does not despise those that he gave his life for. Nope. He loves them. He came to save the lost. And if the lost one that he saved is a believing child, then he gave his life for that child. He did not despise him, but loved him and laid down his life for that sheep. Well, if Christ laid down his life for them, then what should we do? We should lay down our life as well. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 13 to 18. Here, again, we have two examples in Matthew 18. Jesus, who ranks above all of us and all angels, and he did not despise anyone of his elect, and then the angels, who rank above us now, and they don't despise even these believing little ones. So we should not either. And who is our example? 1 John 3, 13. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Right. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever Jesus laid his life down for, we should lay our life down for that person as well. And we're not greater than Jesus. He did it, so why won't we do it? Do we think that we are above it? He, we want him to do that for us, but we won't do it for one another? This is hypocrisy, right? It's double-mindedness. How can we expect Jesus to do that for us and be happy for him to serve us and lay down his life for us, but then we won't do the same for one another? Even if it's a little one, this is what Jesus is telling his own disciples, why they must get this into their mind. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Here he uses an illustration or a parable to teach and to show this reality. Right, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of the sheep has gone astray, right, that lost sheep, the straying sheep, he will not rest until he finds him. He goes and he searches for him. He doesn't say, well, I've still got 99. No, because the one has gone astray, because the one is strayed from the path and is not there with the flock anymore, he goes and searches for him. And when he finds it, he rejoices over it, right? He rejoices over it more than the 99. The 99 that are there day in and day out, right? There's no reason to rejoice over them because they're not lost. But now that I found the lost one, now I am rejoicing over these things. Well, this is how God is in the, the salvation of his elect. They are like straying sheep who have gone astray and he finds them and brings them back 
and God rejoices over them. He does not despise them. He's rejoicing in their salvation. And he doesn't want one of these little ones to perish. So how could we despise the little one? If God the Father is rejoicing in their salvation, then how can we despise them? We can't, right? We have to love them. And again, he's drawing from the lesser to the greater, right? If he's doing this for the little ones, then we ought to be doing this for everyone, right? For everyone is worthy. Everyone who is a true believer, who is a part of the church of God, is a worthy recipient of our love, our affection, our care, right? Our focus. We should give to them all the privileges of being a member of the household of God. Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen. But the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Right. Here, the lost one, the ninety-nine sheep that are there, they're not true believers, but these are those who don't need repentance, right? meaning those who are uh, self-righteous, righteous in their own mind. Well, God's not rejoicing over the self-righteous, but he is rejoicing over the lost sheep that is found, that he finds. And this is how we should be as well toward the saints. We should be rejoicing in salvation, even if the salvation is a little one, right? And God's will is that none of them would perish, but that they would all be saved. And we must align our will with the will of God. Right. If God's will is that not one of these little ones would perish, then what should our will be? That not one of these little ones should perish. And then we should be doing those things that promote their salvation, right? That will keep them from perishing, exercising all the spiritual and material duties that we have toward them. Whatever promotes their salvation, their perseverance, their goodness, their happiness in this life and in the life to come, we should give all of God's people those privileges and do whatever we can to promote those things. One last passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we should stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And that one another includes the whole household of faith. Young or old, rich or poor, male, female, slave, free, it doesn't matter. We should exercise this duty of stimulating to love and good deeds to everyone and not forsake any of them, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, the day of judgment, the day of the return of Christ, so that we don't grow weary in doing good and turn away from the faith. 
So this is what we should be doing for one another. Living in this way, in humility, serving one another. Have the mind of Christ, right? That's the mind that should be in us, the mind of Christ. And Christ was servant to all.